Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having conversations with the brightest and best minds I can find to help inspire all of us to make amazing products, amazing product teams, and amazing product companies. Now, we all know that this podcast has no competition at all, but is that true for your product? If you've ever wished you could simplify competitive research, reduce time commitment and effort, but still get extraordinary insights, well, have I got news for you? You can try Super Products' new course, which teaches you how to unlock the potential of AI-powered insights about your competitors and about your market. This course demystifies AI and teaches you how to be the mega-prompting maestro that will transform ChatGPT into your personal research assistant. To find out more, go to superproduct.tech and snag the course with special listener discount code NIGHT. Check the show notes for more details. On tonight's episode, we'll talk all about how to support the growth and education of your product teams through thoughtful use of communities of practice. What is a community of practice? When should you set one up? What kind of company support do you need? And what are some of the big pitfalls to watch out for? If you want to answer all these questions and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my returning guest tonight is Petra Villa. Petra is a product leadership coach, author and co-curator at the Product at Heart Festival in Hamburg. Petra wrote 2021 Strong Product People, where she got us all pumping metaphorical iron and building the product muscles of our teams. Now, Petra used to work, in her words, as a network cable gal, doing all the wiring under the floor, but now she's channeled her experience connecting people in her new book, Strong Product Communities, to help us create product cultures where learning, growth and innovation are all top priorities. Although, if my experience is anything to go by, we'll have reprioritized everything five times by the end of the sprint. Hi, Petra. How are you tonight? <laughs> what an intro, Jason. There you go. Hello. <laughs> Get it all in up front, so then we can just have a slow half-life to our inevitable collapse by the end of the interview. Yeah, the Friday evening energy. The Friday, well, it's even more evening for you. It's almost, it's almost Saturday morning, so I'll try and get you to bed as soon as possible. <laughs> I don't mind. I'm happy to be here. Good, thank you. No, it's good to see you and good to have you back. So first things first, it's been a while since we spoke on the podcast last, although obviously you and I have had a few chats in between, and of course, just before this as well. Mm. But aside from the new book, what are you working on these days? Ooh. Still leadership coaching, a lot of product leadership coaching, mainly in one-on-one -on -one settings these days, and then some team coaching. So leadership teams that want me to be in the room and help them think things through. Oftentimes it's strategy reviews. It's kind of how can we set up a product organization to work more efficiently? So all these kind of things. And besides of that, it's always content creation because I love content creation. I love to write blog posts and share the small things that I observe and learn in my coachings with the world out there. And then it's product at heart curation time again. So we're already preparing next year's event. Oh, exciting. Well, maybe I'll pop along to the next one. But <laughs> yeah, please do. I'll do my best if I can get my passport renewed. But the thing about the content is actually really interesting because I've spoken to people before and obviously do it myself as well. This idea that actually by talking to as many people as you can and getting out there and doing the coaching, consulting, all of the different yeah, mentoring, all of the different things that you do, if you can anonymize those and kind of change the names to protect the innocent <laughs> to some extent, then you can actually get some really good content. And I know that when you and I spoke before, you said that you were always conscious of making sure that you kind of stay up to date and in touch and that you're not just seen as like someone that used to be able to do this stuff, but that you're constantly updating your thinking. 
So is that something that you take active steps or is it something where it's more kind of organic and by osmosis? Mm, ooh, that's a good question. So I think three things do help me to stay up to date and relevant. One is reviewing books of peers and reading the book, <laughs> the latest books that came out and really think about, okay, why do they think these books need to be out there? Whom is it helping? These kind of things. Then it's definitely um, through the conference. Arne and I are constantly on the look for inspiring speakers and especially inspiring practitioners. So we always want to get people on our stage that are maybe in a product manager's role or in a head of product role or something similar, like because we really think that it helps the audience to see other people struggle and how they maybe overcome these struggles or just sharing their failures or all these kind of things. Because we have a lot of these books, mine included maybe, that talk about some of the things that we do on a theoretical level. I try to write it as hands-on as possible, but still it's a book, right? So it's nicer to have practitioners share what they learned. And through this curational process, we meet a lot of people and I hear a lot of their stories as well. Plus, obviously, what you already pointed out, it's the coachings. Because I coach from big corporate product leads to startup product leads, basically the whole bandwidth of product people. Some have like two direct reports, other have like 250 product management folks in their organization. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of a lot to learn from these people as well, yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting for me. Every day, every week is another exciting adventure that you either get to participate in or at least hear about. <laughs> Indeed. But let's talk about books then. So you just mentioned the books that you've been writing as well as the ones that you've been reviewing. And the first book obviously was Strong Product People, mm. which we spoke about a couple of years back on the podcast, came out in 2021 or so. Yeah. We spoke about it ourselves, so I know what it's all about. But just to recap for maybe people who haven't read it yet, people that are coming across you for the first time, who's that book for and what's the helicopter pitch? The book is for people in product leadership roles or people that want to soon be in a product leadership role, I'd say. I learned along the way that some agile coaches found it helpful as well. Some HR people find it helpful as well. Some CEOs of startups found it helpful as well. But I mainly wrote it with the product leadership persona in mind. And I wrote it because I found people development for product people being a bit of an uncated territory, so to say. So there was no super hands-on book on how a product leadership person could coach the PMs to get better. Oftentimes, I saw that people don't even have a definition what makes a great competent product manager in their situation. So the book tries to help you with that. So define your compass, what makes a great and competent product people, giving feedback, helping them grow, performance reviews, onboarding, hiring, and coaching on the important parts of the job. Because we often in leadership roles assume, hey, all my product managers know about time management. And surprise, they may not. Uh, maybe they need a bit of coaching around topics like time management or prioritization or hypothesis-driven discovery topics, right? So that's what the book is all about. It really tries to help leadership folks with the people development aspect of their job and with growing, yeah, the people within the team. Do you think it's tricky, though, to write a book like that, given that, of course, there are so many different definitions of what a product manager even is and so many different expectations of what product managers are in the different types of company, maybe even some of the companies that you're working with? And I know that you talk in the book about, as, and just now about defining what good looks like and stuff, but how easy is it to kind of wrap something around that and actually 
give people parameters given that it seems to be quite disorganized out there in the big wide world of product in all of its different forms? Yeah, it is. I ignored parts of it. So I would say if it's a bell curve, I ignored the outer left and the outer right of the bell curve because I can't help those people on those um, ends. (laughs) I don't think anyone can, to be honest. Yeah. So the really progressive scale-ups and startups that have like super progressive PM roles and are maybe even beyond, we're not having PMs anymore because not the people that I can help with right now. And on the other extreme, there is people that are starting to wrap their heads around, should we have a PO in an agile environment somewhere or something like that? Not the folks I can help with. It will take them some time to get where my book then can be helpful to them. So I concentrated on the middle part of the bell curve. The the book comes indeed with an introduction that says like, okay, this is what I think a product person is. I call them product manager for the rest of the book. Maybe some of you hold the title PO, but I don't care. (laughs) And it, it often comes with this, hey, that's why you need to make your definition of good. So this is one thing that I use as my definition of good. Maybe you can use it to overcome the fear of the blank page, but still you need to customize it because I really, from if I learned something from all this coaching over the last a few years, there is no single company that works exactly the same way when it comes to product management. There are some best practices, maybe even first principles, <laughs> but still there's a variety of yeah product folks out there. So yeah, the book comes with a bit of a disclaimer. <laughs> It depends, as always. Exactly. But it's obviously a really great book and one that people speak highly of, including some of your greatest fans like Marty Kagan, uh, Gabby Buffram, Martin Erickson, all speak well of it and of you. I think some of them have contributed to the forwards in that book as well. Indeed, yeah. But it has been a while now, so you've presumably got a bunch of feedback from people that have read that book. I wondered if you had any kind of key stories or key learnings that you've heard about the impact of the first book from some of the people that have used it and maybe got back in touch with you. Yeah, so a lot of people really use it like a travel guide. I think they kind of <laughs> embark on this leadership journey and then they, and it's actually something that I recommend uh, in the intro of the book, don't read it front to back because it's it's super dense. It's an intense book. So what I actually recommend is read the chapters that you're interested in and where you're currently having a challenge. And that's what a lot of people do. And I have so many pictures where people sharing this book covered with stickies and highlighted parts of it and stuff like that. So they re- they're really used versions of the book out there. And that's how many, many people are using it. Yeah. And, and still, a lot of people are still buying it. A lot of people are still uh, recommending it, which is obviously super nice for a book that is already like two and a half years old. <laughs> some of the wordings might need an update at some point, but still, I think the core is super valid still. And yeah, it seems to be a helpful guide for a lot of product leadership folks. Well, there you go. You've done your job. But now we're back in the gym with strong product communities. And before we talk about that, I do have to ask, are you now already going to be trademarking the word strong? Like, Is this a franchise? (laughs) Are we going to have to start paying you whenever we use the word strong? No, I won't. It's such a often used word in the English language and in the product environment and ecosystem, right? I branded it to some extent, I know. Sorry for that, folks. But um, (laughs) yeah, it, it it just worked so well. And it was, we thought about what is the title for the second book. And at some point it was like, okay, maybe it's just strong product communities because it makes a series. So why not? There you go. I'm looking forward to all the other strong books that are going to be coming out as well. 
But let's talk about strong product communities. So what was it that made you specifically want to go back to your keyboard and start a new project? Because, you know, a book is a project. Was it something that was always in the back of your mind or was there something that happened after the first book that sort of sparked the idea and got you into the mindset to do this again? Yeah, actually, Strong Product Communities was a blog post series first. So I I don't know when actually, I think it was around one and a half years ago when I had this kind of, okay, there's something missing in my coaching toolkit because I have several clients that have this super vital product communities of practice. And that frees up a ton of time in the product leads calendar. So is that to some extent the secret sauce? And should we share it with more people out there, right? And I figured out, yes, it actually is. Because product people on the IC level, they really love if they can share, learn with and from their peers, right? So that's actually something that individual contributors love. And then I saw these product organizations being so more up-to-date knowledge-wise and being so much closer together, less siloed, products became better, product work became better and easier. So I was like, yeah, maybe there is something around these communities. And as always, what product people do is to do a bit of desk research first and then a bit of research (laughs) after that. So that's what I did. I first of all read a lot about communities. There are great books out there. Emily Weber, hi. You wrote a great book on, about communities as well. A little shout out here. And yeah, then I did a bit of an, a survey, a survey, a, a Twitter, rest in peace, a survey <laughs> where I asked a lot of product people, hey, are you part of a community? Is it a company internal product community or is it an external community like Product Tank? What do you like about these communities? What rituals work well for you? all these kind of things. And I did uh, 11 quantitative interviews, one could say. And some of them I was allowed to publish. So I published, for example, one with Nesrin from Google, where she shared how Google Europe is running their product community. And I interviewed Teresa Torres around how she running her community. So there was really great insights. And then at some point I thought like, yeah, I published most of it in blog posts. And so I did. And then more and more of my clients, because I help clients to set up communities of practice as well. And they always had this kind of, yeah, okay, we love your workshops, but can you bring a workbook? And then I was like, yeah, maybe I should work on a workbook. And that was <laughs> how strong product communities came along. So it was a bit of a byproduct. Strong product people was really, I want to write a book. Strong product communities was more of, oh, I already wrote so much things about communities of practice, so maybe this can become a book as well. Makes a lot of sense, and I'm sure that you learned a lot along the way, and obviously talking to all those people as well. Indeed. But how are you specifically then? I mean, I've heard of communities of practice before, but primarily in a kind of large organization, maybe company using SAFE or something like that, something to try and coordinate so many different distributed teams around a thing. But how are you specifically defining a community of practice in a product sense? So product communities can be created around all kinds of purposes, so to say. For some companies, it's a lot of peer learning. So, hey, I tried jobs to be done. That's how it worked for me. That's where it doesn't work. That's the limitations. I want to share this with my colleagues. For others, it's really this learning together. So people attend conferences together or host a book club where they read books together and share their thoughts, and then they try things together and apply things together. So that is definitely something. And then for others, it's a lot about really 
closer to status updates even because the product people are so siloed in their teams. And it's such a lonely, lonesome job sometimes because the engineers, let's face it, there's, there's always five to 10 engineers, but there's oftentimes <laughs> just one product person, right? And if you don't have time dedicated to exchange with your peers, this oftentimes is not happening at all for product people. So a lot of the communities of practice that I've seen is really this kind of sharing what works for you, what works for your team, maybe what struggles you're currently having with your team and how are you about to solve them? How do you handle conflict within the team? All these kind of things. So the practical stuff that product people need to share within the company. And then sometimes it's just venting about your boss or I don't know. So that's, that's a lot of <laughs> the sessions <laughs> as well. Never happens. Never happens. Best practices in defining goals together. Oftentimes what communities do is they see if there is conflict, for example, and then they try to figure out why there is conflict. Could be a leadership role, could be a leadership task, definitely. But in some organizations, it's like, why shouldn't we as individual contributor folks be able to figure out why we're having these challenges and how we can solve them within this community without asking leadership how to solve this without escalation? So that's another thing that a lot of product communities do. Yeah. And then oftentimes it's content curation. So the more senior folks recommending books, the people sharing, Hey, that's a great post that I, that I read or Hey, have you heard about one night in product? It's such an amazing podcast. <laughs> that's the quote, <laughs> but that's interesting. This whole bottoms up idea. And obviously us product folks and people that have read inspired and empowered, we're all about trying to be the, the change that we want to see from the ground floor and kind of looking at some of the agile manifesto practitioners out there like it's almost as if management itself is a, a dirty word and we should all be just doing everything as self-organizing teams and working it all out for ourselves so do you see these communities of practice being very much a bottoms up thing or do you think there's also mm -hmm. some kind of top-down version of a community of practice where maybe product leader within an organization is like yeah we how many of you problems here maybe i need to almost either set it up or encourage to be set up something like this to help with the learning of the team? So far, in most cases, it was either a grassroots movement or it was an entirely different part of the company, which is, for example, HR. Or if there is a product ops department already, that's larger, larger, larger organizations, right? But I have clients where they had a small product operations team and the product operations team was tasked with, yeah, actually personal development of the product team. And one thing they did besides organizing trainings and hosting workshops was, hey, maybe we should just like make room for the people to connect and to exchange what works for them and what books they read and all these kind of things. So they deliberately started from the product ops team, a community of practice. And it's not that they drive it because then it's, then you invest a lot of energy into the product community of practice. If you run it for the people and then it dies immediately when you stop to invest it, that energy, right? So the question is always, how do you make itself sustainable so that it actually is something that people organize, love the sessions that people love to attend, all these kind of things. But that's really often done by product ops or HR or the people that are holding the development and learning budget. Let's put it like that. Yeah. And it's not yet a product leadership thing. And I should think that's another reason I wrote the book. I think it should be more a product leadership thing because it really, it frees up in some organizations, this community even owns role descriptions. 
and they take care of the performance reviews. So it's a lot of peer review, 360 degree review. And that frees up so much time on the product leadership end that I think it should be a more common thing for product leads to consider doing. But there is an interesting thing here because, I mean, I agree that all of the things that you're suggesting or describing that these teams have been doing are good things to do, like reading books, helping each other out, helping to navigate frameworks or try and work out which one they shouldn't use this week or whatever else. But there's this whole kind of vitamin versus painkiller problem thing going on there. And the same that I've seen when looking at, for example, mentoring, which I'm trying to push as much as I can at the moment as well, which is kind of, I guess, similar in some ways and different in some other ways. But this idea that, you know, getting support from your community or from your peers, but it's something that is traditionally quite hard to keep up without being pushed because, Mm -hmm. of course, it's one of those things where when things are fine, they're fine. And then you maybe kind of forget you miss a session because you had an important meeting or something like that. And then it all starts to wither away, especially if that behavior starts to creep in pretty early in the life of the community or in the life of the mentoring relationship. So is that something that you recommend or that you've got approaches to kind of actively combat other than just kind of mandating that people have to do it? Yeah. Like, are there ways to kind of keep the momentum going after people start it up? Yeah, it's actually pretty easy. So what it needs is good rituals and a bit of a rhythm. So that definitely helps. And whatever that rhythm is and whatever these rituals are, but Try to find a rhythm that works for the people. Some communities of practice love their Friday morning brown bagging session or their Friday lunch brown bagging session. Others meet quarterly for a two-day offsite, right? So whatever your cadence is, find a bit of a rhythm and find rituals that work well. And some communities of practice have one ritual and others have like five different rituals. And then some people say like, yeah, I love the fail nights, but I hate the brown bagging sessions. Yeah. So people can pick. So I think that's important to have a rhythm and a ritual and that people know what rituals are there and what they're for. And the other thing is sponsorship and rewards. And oftentimes communities of practice need a very small budget to really do a ton of things. So book clubs, for example, rather cheap, they have to buy some books. But if five people on your team read a book together and really walking through the book and think about what they can apply, that's money well invested, right? It's way cheaper than sending them off to a workshop or training. We are selling these workshops and trainings and we're happy if the people are coming. <laughs> that's don't get me wrong. But buying yeah, a book you can for check out our brochure after this, right? <laughs> you know, we will add a leaflet <laughs> to, to, to the show notes. No, but I think that is actually something that companies yeah and they underestimate the value of these little things. And then the freedom and autonomy that it gives to the people to have this kind of, okay, there's the budget. You even can run a two-day offsite. You pick the topics. You maybe even invite an external speaker and invest the time to learn with each other and from each other takes you so far with rather small budgets. I think this is an important thing. And how do you keep the senior people engaged on your team? Always a leadership challenge, right? And running a community of practice and nurturing the community of practice, definitely something that some of your senior people will enjoy. So if they hold the budget and if you tell them, have fun, organize um, sessions, organize meetings, organize book clubs, do whatever you think your peers need or ask them, organize it with them because community approach, 
But that actually is something that a lot of the senior folks love doing and adding to the menu because it's another thing how they experience mastery, where they experience like, oh, I actually know some of these things really well. That's fun. So let me help some of the juniors learning the ropes. But it's interesting, again, you talked about some of the benefits. For example, you know, it's much cheaper than going for a course, apparently. Yeah. What crazy person said that? <laughs> but at the same time, that it still obviously has those benefits. But to some degree, those benefits are somewhat intangible because, of course, life is a system, right? And it then starts to then remind me of mentoring and such similar approaches as well. I remember doing an interview on the podcast with a mentoring and coaching expert who said that even, to paraphrase, everything that is measured doesn't matter, but just because it can't be measured doesn't mean it doesn't matter or something along those lines. Yeah. And that there is still a tangible impact. But how do you quantify that impact? Maybe for, I don't know, some suspicious bean counter leaders in an organization that are thinking, well, why aren't these people just doing work? I mean, obviously, we know that it is work, but some people might not feel that that is the case. So how do we persuade people like that, maybe people that do want to have a quantifiable outcome from this, that this is a good thing to do? Yeah, that's actually... So none of my clients ever tasked me with that question, because when they end up yeah, knocking my door, they obviously convinced that the community of practice is a good thing. <laughs> but what I would reply if that question comes along is, I really think if you do the calculation of what are we currently spending on our learning budgets, and what would we need to spend if we reallocate it, and you could actually ask your team and say like, hey, team, take the budget and run with it for a year, and then you compare how much they spend and how much they gained, and how much job satisfaction or however you would call it, happiness, they gain through being able, uh, deciding on what they spend the money, that often makes a big difference, I'd say. So that is something that I would try to measure, don't know about the outcome, because it's how do you measure? Is it a employee net promoter score? I don't know if that works. Would you, would you recommend your friends to join our company? Maybe that's <laughs> something you could measure. I don't know. But hiring oftentimes gets a lot easier in companies with a vital community of practice because product people talk to each other on all the conferences that we're attending. And you hear <laughs> about the companies that have this culture around learning and personal development. And I think it's, it can be a talented product leadership person that does a lot of coaching, but it can also be a vital product community where people learn from each other and with each other. And that is something that you could try to measure as well. So our people come knocking your door and say like, hey, I would love work for your organization because I heard you're doing great product work and the product is cool. So that's the other thing, right? Your product needs to be cool to some extent <laughs> as well. So a community of practice doesn't do the full trick, but you get the idea. So hiring is something that you could look into as well. It should become easier over time if you're having a vital community of practice but as a big it depends over how you even set these things up right i mean you exactly. talked before about all the different ways that people could run these things yeah so if i'm sitting there as a pm maybe an ic pm in a mid-sized company and i'm thinking well hey we've got a few product managers these days and it's really maybe time for me to start thinking about setting something like that up is there like a community of practice 101 in a box aside from your book but of course that's got its own it depends in it as well is there some kind of structure that you can give to that decision-making process so that they can maybe start to 
work with some basic template or is it pretty much like dealer's choice? They get to do whatever they want based <laughs> on whatever's happening in their organization. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually a blog post listeners could read where I talk about the minimum viable um, product community. A brief recap of that. So I think the most important thing of any community is human to human connections. So that's where it all should start and should not start with you filling out a massive canvas. I do have a product <laughs> community canvas, but this is kind of step five, right? So the first thing really is that people are aware of the possibility that they can do something like a book club or even watch a talk from your preferred conference together and then discuss if you think what the person talked about would be helpful in your context, right? So that already is a really great start. So what I usually recommend is have the session where everybody shares their current challenge or learning goal. So what are you currently interested in? What are you currently struggling with? Is it prioritization? Is it strategy work? Is it whatever it is? And there are always patterns. So there are always one or two people interested in, uh, two, or two to three people interested in the same topics. And then why not creating this small learning group? So find learning buddies. I think this is where every long-lasting sustainable community started. And it should be more about the, what are we currently trying to improve in our daily work then it is about the abstract thing of learning stuff together. Nobody's interested in that down the line. So it's really, they're having a problem. Maybe they need to run the first user interviews and they've never done great user interviews and they don't know where to start. And then there's a senior people, a person that is happy to share some of the great resources and books that helped them five years ago when learning more about user interviewing, right? So all these kind of things. And I think this initial session of, hey, maybe we could optimize how we learn. So what is everybody currently learning? Can we create the small learning groups? I think this is step number one and the most important step. And then a bit later, you could talk about, okay, is this really a community? Who's a member of this community? Are actually the UX people allowed to join our events? Or is it a closed community or an open community? So all these conversations need to happen at some point in time, but not in the beginning. Now, you've just talked about 2 to 3 PMs, for example. You've been talking about cross groups and cross teams and product leaders in the plural. All of these seem to be things that are in maybe slightly larger organizations than a mm -hmm. tiny little tin pot startup. At what point do you think that it makes sense to start trying to organize your first community of practice within an organization? I mean, I'm assuming that it's not when you've just got one or two PMs in the tiniest startup in the world, or is it even valuable for them to start to try and apply some of those principles? I would always recommend every product person on the planet to be part of a community and it can be a company external community. So go to the closest pub, see if there's some product people hanging out there, <laughs> most likely a thing these days, and connect with them. There's so many meetups out there and it's shocking how often I have people in coaching sessions or conversations at conferences that have never heard about any of these meetups. So. Thing number one, go look some external meetups up, go attend, because you always will learn something new. And even if it's just like the conversations that you're having after all the talks happened over a beer or water, is really yeah, important and oftentimes enlightening and inspiring and all these kind of things, right? So even if you just product management equals one in your organization, then go to such a meetup every once in a while. 
And then the other thing is, I, I once read a study, and don't ask me where it was, but they said like, for people that are so for, for professionals that are in one team and there's only one person holding that profession in the team, and I think that applies for most of us product people, if it's six to seven in an organization, then you're already super siloed. And if there is no structure to it, you often tend to not speak to all of your peers. So I think then it does make sense to have, even if it's just like really informal community sessions, I would recommend to do something small, something regular. A small budget, like watching talks together or doing some book reviews together, basic stuff. But I think that's already a lot of fun. Some people only run Slack channels on, hey, that's a interesting article I wrote the other week, or that's my weekly win or whatever it is, right? So even a Slack channel, really low key, already does help to get the people out of the silo and yeah, being exposed to what others currently struggling with. But speaking of silos and also to some extent about external communities as well, one thing that I've reflected on in the past and something that maybe affected me earlier in my career and to some extent even was one of the motivators for starting the podcast even was it's really hard, even if you're in a company with a team with a few PMs and you do start talking to each other about some of that stuff and some of the, you know, maybe trying to do a book club or trying to kind of share wins, all of the things that you could do in that team, you still face the inevitable problem that you are still all basically in the same boat you all have the same challenges yeah. you all have the same problems and maybe you also even all lack the same thing because that's not a thing that your company really champions or actively fights against for example i've worked in companies that very specifically don't want you to do customer research that's someone else's job so anyone that's come up through that company, they don't get to do that. So they probably don't get to really talk about it. And the books mm -hmm. might start to feel a little bit theoretical. So back to that kind of external community, do you feel that there's a lot more value in those external kind of cross-company communities of practice, if we can call them those, or just communities or just meetups, whatever we want to call them? Do you think that they're more valuable or do you think that they're just different and that there's equal value to both of the different types of kind of internal and external communities that you can join yeah they're different external ones so they're the ones that we all know the ones where a lot of people are members of and go to so something like product tank but they're uh, smaller more informal networks as well right because maybe you are part of a company that does not do user interviews on a regular basis because you are not allowed to contact the user or whatever and I see it happening that in the bigger communities, especially the bigger Slack communities, for example, women in product is one of those ones, where oftentimes people talk about, hey, this is my particular challenge. Is, is, he is, is somebody here who is in a similar company or situation or industry? And then they form this mini communities. It's a company external community. It's a mini community of people that are having the same, the same challenge. And I think these ones are the most valuable ones. And those ones is something that you have, you actively have to reach out to people that are in a similar situation. For example, we have a super small Hamburg product leadership Slack group with people that have product leadership roles and are based in Hamburg. So we could meet over water sometimes. <laughs> That's what Germans do. 
So yes, I've I've heard. Yeah, <laughs> we're famous for meeting a robot. <laughs> but you get the idea, right? So I think company external ones super valuable, not necessarily the big ones. Definitely, it's nice to attend a conference every once in a while, even if it's just for benchmarking. So where are we currently standing? But the ones that you learn more, where you get a lot out of, is the small, informal, more personal networks that you create with people that are in a similar situation. No, 100%. But what are some of the pitfalls or common mistakes that people make when trying to set up their first community of practice or maybe things that they should just try to avoid to stop it all crashing down and burning and everyone giving up and not trying again? Are there any common problems that you see when people of try and start course. out? Of course. <laughs> so, if only there was a book that told us all about that stuff. Yeah, that would there, be. If only some, there was a book. There, there's some some things about that in the book, but just to, <laughs> a, a quick summary of some of these pitfalls. So, I think there are not so many if it's a grassroots movement, because if it's a grassroots movement, the product people just meet. Some even meet out of their outside of their working hours, which I would not recommend as a long-term solution. By the way, your company should value when you're learning more about your craft. Anyways, but even that is possible, right? So you can even start outside of your working hours. Nobody will actually complain. Nobody will realize you get better over time. Super cool. Even if you do it within working hours, it's rare that companies really turn you down and say like, hey, you're not allowed to meet within working hours for half an hour on Friday to share some of your struggles. So we, we, we passed that point. I think we're all in this era of new work. So <laughs> I think that's not a problem. So the grassroots movements, not so much a, thing, a, a problem. Sometimes when it comes to sponsorship, financing, then they ask too late. I think they could ask early on for small budgets like, we need to buy some books or we want to attend this local conference. Not something crazy where we need all of us need to go abroad, but something reasonable, right? So that's one thing that I see happening. If it's an IC-driven community, ask for budget. That's actually one, one thing that I would recommend. And then for, for the other ones, so if the product lead is starting it or if HR or product operations is starting it, they often die in the moment when, for example, the product ops person stops taking care of the community. So if you're in this role, if that's, if you're in that position, then your question should always be, how can we make this self-sustainable? So get out of the way of people, try to be there at the sidelines, try to help them to get in touch, but then the human to human interaction magic has to unfold and they have to see the value that it brings, you can to some extent, for example, run retro so that everybody realizes how much value they gained because of the community of practice. You, that's stuff you can do, but don't run the show. Don't. That's the biggest pitfall, I think. Don't run the show. Well, absolutely excellent advice there. But speaking of advice, I always like to get super actionable and step one actionable as well by the end of an interview these days. So if someone's listening to this now, either uh, an IC product manager or a product leader that's thinking of maybe floating this with their team to, to see if they fancy this sort of thing. Like, you've talked a lot about some of the steps that you can do and some of the principles and some of the reasons why it's a good idea. And obviously, it all really boils down to just talking, which I guess would be the ultimate advice. But if there's one concrete first step that someone in a mid-size company with a bunch of product managers 
should maybe take as that first step, like that first thing that can get them along this path? What would that first step be? Host this one workshop where everybody talks about their current struggles or learning goals. And then go create this. So find learning buddies, have the small learning cycles and see where it takes you and plan a retro for three months down the line or six months down the line. And then see whatever, wherever it takes you. You've got to throw some stuff into the wind sometimes and just see where it blows. Exactly, right. it's like that, exactly. Like that That's scene in American Beauty. It's just a oh, yeah. beautiful bag floating around in the wind. Rose pestle, yeah. <laughs> no, not the rose petals. That was a different scene. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that was obviously excellent advice. I completely agree with it. Wouldn't expect anything less from a coach of your caliber. But hopefully it'll inspire some people to give it a try. But Yeah, please do. If they do want to catch up with you after this, if they want to find out more about strong product people or strong product communities or setting up their first community or send you any money they owe you for using the word strong, <laughs> where do they come? So the easiest way is to go to strongproductpeople.com or to my coaching website, and that's petra-ville.com as well. So that's the two websites that I'm having, and that's the easiest way to contact me. And absolutely not on Twitter anymore from the sounds no. of it as well. No. It was fun while it lasted. Rest in peace. It was, it, it was really a hard one, actually. I love Twitter so much. <laughs> Sad times. Yeah. Well, I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes, and hopefully you'll get a few people heading into your direction doing some bicep curls. Well, obviously, Petra, always a pleasure to chat. Always enjoy. Thanks for having me. Well, it's brilliant to have you back. And hopefully this will resonate with some of the people out there that are maybe struggling a little bit on their own and give them a little bit of confidence to take that first step. Obviously, you and I will keep chatting. But as for now, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did, again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic guests, sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night. <laughs>